Hey, I'm James Lankford. It's great to be able to be with you again for another episode of The Breakdown with James Lankford. This is where we try to take the things you see on the national news that they cover in 30 seconds and to be able to bring it down to a little deeper level, have a deeper conversation. This conversation today is on China. It's an issue that we talk about and a lot of people talk about Chinese economy. We talk about Chinese trade. We talk about Chinese military. We talk about Taiwan. But often people throw those terms around but can't really go deeper than that. We're going to try to take this a little bit deeper as we go through this conversation today. If you're tracking us on this single episode, great. Welcome to the conversation on this. We do put this out in a subscription mode. If you want to know when the next episode is coming up on the next big topic, you can always subscribe to us at all the major uh, platforms for podcasting, whether it be iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, whatever it may be. You can go to any of those and subscribe to The Breakdown with James Langford. Today, as I mentioned before, we're talking about China and we're talking with a China expert is Matt Pottinger. Matt has been a leader on these issues and has been one to be able to study, write, research on the issues of China. He was the China expert in the Trump administration that actually was actually developing the policy to be able to put in place. What are we going to do uh, with this great power challenge of China? Very few people that I know that I bump into on the street just can speak Mandarin fluently or to get a chance to talk about Chinese philosophy and ancient philosophy as well as current things. Or can pick up a newspaper and it can explain what's in a Chinese newspaper, why it's there except for Matt. Uh, you're one of those leaders that's not only uh, you know it, you've studied it, uh, you've experienced these issues on the policy side, on the cultural side, on the human rights side. Uh, you've had this passion for a very long time and we're very grateful to be able to pick your brain, to be able to go a little bit deeper. Quite frankly, there are business leaders all over the country that pick your brain all the time about China. We're grateful to get a little bit of time with you as well uh, to be able to also pick your brain, to be able to determine what's going on with China. So, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today on The Breakdown. Thanks, Senator Langford. It's really great to see you, uh, a fan of your show, and uh, it's, it's great to, uh, to be talking about China with you. Well, glad to be able to do it. So let, let's set, set some context on this. When we talk about China, some people talk about China and they have this perception of, oh, yeah, China is a great power. They're a little different. They're just a country that's bigger than ours. But we do trade with them. They do trade with us. We watch the Olympics. Everyone looked like they were in a good mood. Uh, they, they have tourists that come over the United States. We have professors that are here uh, with different exchanges with China. So pe some people look at it on a very generic turn. And then you question, you push a little deeper and you say, China's a communist government. Are you aware of that? Do you know what that means? So when you set the context to people that are even business people, considering doing business with a billion people in China, and you try to explain when you step into China, you need to understand this about them philosophically, how they're structured as a country. How do you start setting the context for people? I, say, I, I like the way that you framed it. it you know, China is anything but a generic uh, power or generic country. It is the, one of the last remaining Leninist dictatorships uh, that you know survived through the end of the Cold War, and um, you know at the end of the Cold War, 30 years ago, after the Soviet Union collapsed, we thought that it was probably only going to be a matter of time before those last remaining uh, Leninist, uh, you know, nominally co communist countries would, um, you know, matter of time before they would have to start to liberalize, open up, open up their economies, and uh, and uh, over time we hope democratize a little bit, uh, if not a lot. Uh, but we miscalculated in the case of China. We really underestimated the will and capability of the uh, Chinese Communist Party to cling to power at any cost. And so uh, when, when we talk about a rising China, we're not talking about the rise of, a, of another democracy. Uh, we're not talking about a sort of generic um, uh, 
sort of rise in that sense. We're talking about a, a country that's becoming less free over time, uh, less uh, market-oriented in its economics, uh, and, uh, and also less consensus-driven and much more driven by the, the dictates of one man, one human being, and that, of course, is the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. Yeah. So when you think about the Chinese people, again, the, the Chinese are excellent at PR, basically, uh, putting out smiling individuals and saying, here's what we're really like. But when you look into the Chinese nation and the nation of China and the Chinese people that are out there, uh, kind of paint the picture for me of what we're actually dealing with. Because you talk about rural Chinese and urban Chinese or those that are actually in Chinese leadership. They're in a very different role uh, in this spot. So kind of walk us through what it's like to be a Chinese citizen at this point, whether yeah. it's human rights issues well, I mean, or whether it's just basic Chinese economy. People, Chinese people are great. I, I spent uh, nine years in China uh, over the course of uh, you know my earlier adulthood and and uh, and, and and really loved living there. I loved uh, Chinese people. But it, when when you know when the when the Chinese government gets out of the way of the Chinese people a little bit, like it was doing in uh, sort of, you know, the 1980s and then again in the 90s or into the into the early 2000s, you see people uh, expressing that that sort of entrepreneurial gene and uh, um, and engaging with the world. The problem is uh, the Chinese Communist Party is not getting out of the way of the Chinese people uh, anymore, the way that it was beginning to do under Deng Xiaoping, uh, the leader who ruled roughly from you know, the, the 1980s and 1990s till his death in 1997. Um, they're reasserting themselves. The, the Chinese Communist Party, this ruling party, is reasserting itself into the daily lives of all people, into their into the economy. Uh, and uh, they're using high technology to intrude on people, people's lives in ways that were unthinkable by, uh, you know, 20th century dictatorships. They're able to monitor uh, everything that people buy, what they write, what they're shopping for, what they're looking at and reading online and where they're going. And the Chinese government is trying to create and, and is beginning to succeed at creating this uh, system that they call Skynet, which without any irony, you and I remember the Terminator you know, right. films you know, from the 1980s and Skynet. You know, they're, they're building it and they're actually using the same name. They're ingesting all of this data and trying to predict uh, uh, people's behavior and also to anticipate any criticism uh, or, or resistance to, uh, to the party and, and, and its uh, goals. So if you're disloyal to those goals, uh, they find out and they pay you a visit or they pay your family members a visit. If you're living overseas, they, they, uh, you know, the security apparatus will, will call your parents and tell them that uh, they, they want to meet because they're concerned with things that you're writing or reading. Uh, when you're living abroad in the United States, as as Chinese students are, are confronting that situation right now, um, so um, uh, you know we're we're confronting a, a very different kind of uh, um, problem and adversary than what we expected uh, when when we embarked on this engagement policy uh, and continued it through the end of the Cold War. So their, their goal is not just managing their own citizens, though, and to be able to make sure that people don't say negative things. Obviously, you can't be a free journalist in China. They control all media there. They control the messaging. The Internet doesn't come into China the way that it does everywhere else. They, they manage their own social media platforms that they run. Uh, they're gathering information. And if you want to be able to have interchange with a Chinese citizen, that's going to be very, very controlled, managed, watched, 
or eliminated entirely. They just can't go to the web the way that an American could to be able to go to any site anywhere. There are certain limitations that are, uh, that are put on Chinese citizens. But that's not just about Chinese citizens. The, uh, the Chinese Communist government also has goals that extend worldwide. Uh, you'll hear the term uh, in the public arena about the Belt and Road Initiative. What, what, what is that? What are they trying to actually accomplish worldwide, not just among the billion citizens in China? Yeah, and, and to, to your first point, um, uh, you're right. They've harnessed the Internet uh, to, to, uh, to, to monitor people's behavior in ways that we did, we did not anticipate. You remember during the Clinton administration, President Clinton memorably said that uh, China is going to have a lot of trouble controlling the Internet and people on the Internet. He said it will be like trying to nail jello to the wall. Well, the Communist Party has succeeded in nailing jello to the wall. Uh, like you said, they control the entire environment. They do not allow Twitter and Facebook and other uh, overseas apps and news sites in. They've expelled most U.S. journalists. They've arrested a lot of uh, Chinese journalists who used to be able to write uh, relatively freely, at least about business, if not about politics. Um, so it's a very different environment. It's much less free than it was when I was living in China 20 years ago, working as a reporter there. The Belt and Road Initiative, what the Chinese in, in Chinese, it's called One Belt, One Road. And it's a metaphor and a strategy. The metaphor is that they're building a, 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 uh, a maritime road to the Mediterranean Sea, and they're building a land road, like an old silk road, uh, uh, all the way to Europe over the Eurasian continent. And China wants to control all of the, all, all of the stations of that road and, uh, and sort of the standards uh, and trade of, of those routes. But what it, what it really is in practice is uh, in an effort to gain, um, uh, to really co-opt uh, and in some cases corrupt uh, leaders in developing countries around the world by offering them uh, large loans. And, uh, and there are often kickbacks associated with those loans. Those kickbacks go, go to the, the leaders who accept the loans. But the loans from the Chinese government are nominally to build new infrastructure, build ports, build uh, highways and, uh, and uh, the telecommunications infrastructure. In practice, the loans are far bigger uh, than these countries are able to take on or, or repay. And so the countries almost invariably end up uh, defaulting on those loans. And then the Chinese government says, oh, you're defaulting. So it's time for us to read the fine print of those contracts we had you sign. The contracts are all secret, by the way. They're, they're known only to the leaders who sign them, although we've gotten our hands on, a, a, on about 100 of these contracts. And, uh, you know, they are, they are deeply corrupt, highly problematic uh, agreements that allow the Chinese government to take control of those countries' infrastructure when the countries are unable to repay the loans. And that's why you've seen the Chinese government take over uh, for 99 years a dual-use, you know, potential military port in Sri Lanka, just off the coast of India. It's why the, the, uh, the airport in Uganda is, has now been taken over by the Chinese government, because the Ugandan government uh, made, the, made the colossal mistake of signing an agreement that, that uh, they were never going to be able to help, you know, ever, ever be able to repay. Uh, and so China is taking control of ports and infrastructure uh, all over the world, Latin America, and the Caribbean, and the Pacific Islands, Central Asia, Africa, and so on. Uh, uh, so it's really sort of a, a neo-colonial model 
the the uh, the British Empire was built through the use of gunboat diplomacy, but also the very deft uh, sort of co-opting of elites in in countries. China's sort of taking a, a play from from the old uh, uh, you know 18th century British playbook, uh, except they're using debt diplomacy rather than gunboat mm-hmm. diplomacy to achieve. So, it. Matt, what's what's the goal there? What what are they trying to accomplish? What they want is for uh, uh, governments to start using Chinese currency. They want influence over the leaders so that they can get those leaders to support China's policy agenda, which is, uh, in, in, in shorthand, China's ultimate aim is to render the United States irrelevant. They just want us to be irrelevant in the future as a power, and they want uh, the world to be safe for autocracy. And uh, and so that's what they're doing. They're building these these little... Um, uh, sort of um, partnerships with uh, corrupted elites, co-opted elites uh, in foreign countries so that China can uh, base their military in those countries. China has ambitions you may have been reading about. It was something that we were trying to uh, prevent uh, in the last administration. I know that the Biden administration is also trying to prevent China from gaining uh, access to build a naval base on the Atlantic Ocean, Okay, not just in the Pacific. Uh, China, China wants to. Uh, they, they have global ambitions, and um, and, we're, and we're starting to see that unfold now. So, where the United States are, what we say is our greatest export is freedom. Uh, we have a lot of things we export out of the country economically, but our greatest export is really freedom. When we move into countries and our diplomatic relationships are really designed to be able to set the people of that country free. If they don't have a free press, if they don't have freedom of religion, if they don't have freedom of speech, if they don't have opportunity to be able to make their choices, to have entrepreneurship and to be able to rise, that country will continue to be oppressed. Uh, and the people of that country are oppressed. We're always pushing back to try to free people around the world and to have more engagement in their own government. The Chinese government's really the opposite. They're teaching dictators around the world how to be better dictators, how to have a better surveillance uh, system in their country, how to be able to manage their people as they do in the communist government. Literally, their greatest export is control and trying to be able to manage control. And we're seeing them move through Africa and through multiple other countries, literally equipping dictators with the tools needed to be able to control their people while we're trying to be able to help set people free in this process. So it's not just the United States economy against the American economy. It is really two sets of ideas. Is the world going to be dominated by a few people controlling the many, or is the world going to be dominated by a free people being able to speak out and to be able to live their lives and to choose that? That's the American system versus the Chinese system. So sometimes this gets broken down into, well, America has bases all over the world. What's the big deal about that? America, you know, engages in diplomacy all over the world. What's the big deal about that? There's an enormous philosophical difference with a world that's dominated by China and its values or the world dominated by the United States and our values of freedom on that. So that's really these two competing ideologies that are out there. Now, we see it a lot in trade, but we also see it in military engagement. As you mentioned, it's not just trade in ports and airports, but they're actually moving militarily around the world in a way that we've not seen China do uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They are now. What what are you seeing in the military expansion for, uh, for China? Well, I, I couldn't have put it any better. You, you, you uh, uh, put your finger on it. We're exporting freedom. China's exporting control. We're trying to help governments uh, maintain their sovereignty and independence. China wants to build a sphere of influence with a new hierarchical uh, sensibility, m- more like you know the empires of old, where countries are subordinate to the big power. 
uh, and uh, and the, the China's military buildup is uh, is a big component uh, in service of, of China's aims. Now, the the Chinese military now spends more money, and this is just according to their published budget. Uh, there's a lot of uh, of other spending that's sort of hidden in uh, in, in uh, R and D and other budgets, but just the published top line figure is more than the rest of Asia's militaries combined. Uh, so more than Japan and South Korea, North Korea, India, and all the, the 10 Southeast Asian nations, including uh, Indonesia. China's spending more than all of them combined, and they're acquiring capabilities, high-tech capabilities, that are designed to keep the United States away from Asia uh, to give China a free hand to do things like uh, annex Taiwan uh, through um, military force and um, uh, capture the South China Sea, which is a massive uh, ocean. You know, it's a waterway that uh, trillions of dollars of world trade pass through um, uh, each year, uh, and also to uh, intimidate uh, Japan and Southeast Asian countries, and then ultimately to go beyond that. So. Um, we're dealing with a real juggernaut. This was a this was a military that 20 years ago did not have the capability to make the sorts of threats that have now suddenly become credible uh, because they poured so many resources into building up that military capability. And again, the focus right now is on their neighborhood. Namely, they want to capture Taiwan, which is the world's first uh, uh, Chinese democracy, the Republic of China on Taiwan. Uh, the very existence of a democracy, no matter how small, there's only 24 million people in Taiwan. You know, it's like a, a equivalent to a mid-sized or small province in China. Yet, the existence of that democracy is a threat to uh, the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party uh, because, uh, you know, it's it's an example of individuals um, uh, ruling themselves and in uh, choosing the government that they they want, enjoying the freedom. Uh, the freedoms afforded by a rule of law and a constitution. So uh, they're focused on on extinguishing democracy in Taiwan. And from there, that would be the lily pad to project power deep into the Pacific Ocean, uh, to our coasts, to cut off access to uh, Australia and New Zealand and Pacific Islands. And then in the other direction, they want to move into the Indian Ocean, uh, up into the Mediterranean and on eventually to the Atlantic. Uh, so the military is a key component of uh, of their strategy. Yeah. So they th this term gets thrown around a, a one China policy, a one China policy that actually involves obviously Taiwan, but we also saw that with Hong Kong. You know that very well from being there so many times. Hong Kong, if you went back just three years ago, uh, was a free area with a free press and free religion and and all the freedoms that were there, and an agreement from China that will be maintained that. Uh, but within a few years time period they were able to shift and then take over and then subordinate Hong Kong, where now they don't have a free press anymore. Now they don't have the opportunity to be able to have freedom of religion. Now they've cut that off, uh, which a lot of people said they'll never do because that will cut off their economy. Why would they cut off this engine in their economy to be able to take away freedoms from Hong Kong? But clearly freedom is a threat to a communist government. So what have we learned from what they did in Hong Kong to what we may see coming with Taiwan in the days ahead? And why does that matter to somebody in the United States? Why should we care what happens to Taiwan? That seems like a Pacific issue. If the Chinese claim uh, Taiwan, 
why should we care that if they go just take over that, as you said, small island that's there with 24 million people in it? Like you mentioned, you know, China signed a treaty, uh, not just not just a piece of paper, but a, but a treaty registered with the United Nations signed between the United Kingdom and China that said that China will respect the a high degree of autonomy in Hong Kong and abide by a formula the Chinese dreamt up called one country, two systems. In other words, when the British handed over Hong Kong in 97, uh, Beijing said that as a precondition, uh, they would uh, uh, ensure that Hong Kong would still enjoy its own customs, its own uh, courts, its own rule of law, including freedom of religion, freedom of the press. I mean, it was an incredible thriving society. Uh, I lived there for a few years, even after the British handover, uh, but uh, China violated, it completely um, disregarded that treaty uh, when, when it started to sign a law in 2019 that basically abrogated um, and superseded all of Hong Kong's own constitution. And now they have stamped out many of those freedoms. They're crushing the freedoms of the individual. Uh, they're dismantling uh, the rule of law. And it's uh, it's really, uh, you know, they're dictating uh, uh, rules there and strangling the golden goose, right? So what it, one thing it taught us is that China's word is not worth uh, spit, but it also showed us that China's willing to do self-harm it's willing to damage its own economy and the prospects of its own economic advancement for its own people in order to ensure uh that they uh, uh there are no challenges of any type to the communist party's authority so it is a paranoid uh dictatorship and um uh that matters for americans because americans sign contracts americans do business we sell agriculture we export machinery and other things to China, those agreements are not worth uh, the paper they're written on. Uh, China agreed to, with the Trump administration in 2020 that it would uh, significantly increase its agricultural pur uh, purchases. We just heard from the Biden administration that China did not keep up their end of the deal. They only bought about 60% of what they had promised. Mm -hmm. Now, for Taiwan, if Taiwan were to fall to a military action by, uh, by the People's Republic of China, uh, we would wake up in a very different world. This would be, uh, you know, even even more serious than the situation that's that's uh, uh, erupted in uh, in Europe over Ukraine and the outrageous threats to Ukraine sovereignty by Russia. The, the consequences of Taiwan falling would mean that the U.S. economy uh, would lose access potentially to uh, most of the world's supply of high-end semiconductors. Our economy, about a third of our economy, uh, is tied to high-end semiconductors. So we would uh, uh, we would start going backwards in time. Uh, it would have a, a very significant impact on on our, our electronics uh, industry, our innovation economy. Uh, it would also threaten Japan in ways that would would really provoke an emergency in Japan, in South Korea, and among the, the Southeast Asian democracies, um, uh, given that. Uh, Taiwan, if it fell, that would that would really capsize the whole defensive concept for protecting Japan. Uh, you know, all of its its defenses oriented west. If Taiwan fell. It means that China is really outflanking Japan and would be able to threaten blockades and the like. So we would we would probably see um, uh, the spread of nuclear weapons as many countries would scramble to try to arm themselves with some kind of a deterrent against China. 
uh, we would see uh, uh, emergencies that would threaten democracy uh, in uh, in all of those great maritime uh, uh, republics and other nations throughout uh, the Western Pacific, uh, and it would it would cut off um, the United States and our access to the biggest markets in the world, but also the supply of semiconductors and electronics to our system. So it'd be an extremely, extremely disruptive event. We'd wake up in a new era. Yeah, the supply chain runs through Taiwan. Uh, we, we've, we've seen right now uh, the availability of cars, for instance, of new cars. And uh, everybody will say, well, there's no new cars in the, in the supply chain. They'll say, well, aren't those assembled here in the United States or assembled in North America? They are. But they've got this little semiconductor that comes from Taiwan. And if that doesn't occur, none of the functionality of that vehicle actually happens. We don't actually have a supply chain challenge with cars more than we have a supply chain challenge on getting semiconductors. If all of that gets cut off uh, from Taiwan in an instant, literally, whether it's your iPhone or whether it is a, a vehicle or whatever device that it may be, anything that does something electronically has a semiconductor in it. We don't produce the majority of those. Uh, we have overseas suppliers, and most of those are in Taiwan. And uh, we lose all that. We lose all that technology and that availability literally in a day. And uh, China seems to be extremely aware of that and, uh, and very, very focused on what they can do to the rest of the world if only they took over Taiwan. It's exactly right. And it's why uh, I think that we need to bring manufacturing back to the United States. We used to be the leaders in manufacturing uh, high-end semiconductors. We're still the best in the world at designing them. But if you don't make them, over right. time, your ability even to design the chips uh, will, will erode. Um, you know, America's industrial rise and, and the rise of uh, our digital age was really benefited from the fact that we were manufacturing in the United States because people who were doing the theoretics and doing the designs could actually uh, work in inside of, uh, of fabs, inside of factories to learn about the materials that are being used, to learn about the constraints, but also the new possibilities that are available um, given um, uh, given the engineering that takes place with all the tooling and and uh, manufacturing. So it's important to bring some of that back. Yeah, matters. You brought up one issue earlier, and it has to be, unfortunately, the last issue we talk about. There's there's literally a billion things we could talk about with China, uh, but we don't have time to be able to cover all those. But I do want to cover one thing that some people don't pay attention to much, and that's the relationship between China and Russia. Uh, I'd, I'd describe them as frenemies uh, because they don't get along until they do get along, and they find ways to cooperate, and they find ways to be able to fight. Uh, a lot of Americans just look at Russia and China and just say, well, they're, they're allies and they get along, uh, but they, they don't always. And there's a unique dynamic there. And uh, as you mentioned before, and what's happening with Russia and Ukraine at this moment while we're talking uh, makes us pay attention to what's happening in Russia. But knowing that the Chinese government is also watching how the United States engages with Ukraine, just like they watch the United States and what happened in Afghanistan and our horrible retreat withdrawal uh, that actually happened there. The whole world watched the weakness of the United States. As they watch Ukraine, there are also the people of Taiwan are thinking, what happens next? But this very unique relationship between Russia and China, if you can help us get, just get some context there and some history. No, you said frenemies is not a bad way to think about it because you've got these two big powers uh, they're, they're both um, really empires that share a massive, massively long border. And over recent centuries, um, they have uh, fought against each other. They've, they've taken territory from one another and um, fought, a, fought a bitter, um, uh, short conflict. 
um, uh, you know, even even in the modern era, in the late 1950s, they had a split uh, between, you know, the Soviet Union and China because uh, partly because of ideological differences, but also because of territorial disputes. So I, I like to say that this is a real uh, sort of uh, alliance that, that uh, Putin and Xi Jinping are building, but it is a top down one. It's one at the leader level uh, and one that's being imposed on their two systems. Uh, but if you if you go down a few levels and talk to bureaucrats in each of those systems, uh, there's there's still a significant degree of mistrust between China and Russia. There's still a lot of reasons why they 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 don't believe that they make natural allies, but they do make opportunistic allies at this particular moment because they have a common foe in the United States. Right. And uh, it, it's uh, again, just like I was saying about Taiwan, the mere existence of the United States is a problem for both of those both of those dictators. Uh, and so there's no amount of, of appeasement or pacification or you know favors that we can offer, concessions that we can make that would ultimately make Russia and China feel at ease. Uh, the truth is there's there's no amount of concessions that would make them feel at ease because the mere existence of, of, of a democracy as the world's most powerful country is a threat to their legitimacy. And therefore, um, they, they are taking up the opportunity to try to coordinate in creating problems for free countries, uh, of Russia facing westward into Europe, China facing eastward into the Pacific. Uh, they, they view that as sort of a force multiplier. They can keep us distracted and, and tied up with, uh, uh, with problems. Uh, th those two dictators will benefit from the actions each are taking. Yeah, it's just something we as Americans don't think about all the time. Most Americans don't get up and think, you know, the rest of the world hates our freedom. Uh, we love our freedom, enjoy our freedom. We wish more people had the opportunity to be able to have our freedom. And so we're always pushing that value out to say, allow individuals to be able to make free choices, because as you give opportunities for free choices, there's lots of opportunities there for an entire community. They wake up every day saying there's chaos and I need to fix it by dominating people that are free. And so they, they, they can't stand our mere existence at that point because of what we stand for and what we're all about. For some reason, Americans seem to get that when we talk about Islamic terrorism and people trying to be able to dominate us in some of those areas uh, around the Middle East and to be able to say, we're gonna dominate this American perspective of too much freedom. But when you think about China, uh, oftentimes we think, oh, they seem like nice people. I don't think that's what they're really trying to do. They're just a lot more subtle in the way they're addressing that, becoming less and less subtle over the last couple of years as China's become more and more blunt uh, and they're forced to be able to say, we're going to dominate this Western perspective. We're going to put aside all this chaos that the West brings and bring order to everything by our own control. We as Americans do have to awaken to that, whether you're doing a business relationship with individuals in China, whether you're considering doing manufacturing in China and shipping back to the United States, people will learn pretty quickly when that's convenient for the Chinese communist government, they like it. When it's not convenient, they'll shut it down in an instant. And it becomes its own unique challenge to be able to deal with a government that is very different than our own, uh, both on how they supervise you, uh, how they own your intellectual property, uh, how they manage the day-to-day -day workforce, and how they control everybody in the process. Uh, so it is a very different experience for them uh, as it is for us. And it is an awakening for us to be able to think about that more. That is exactly right. You look at the example of Australia, who uh, the Australians were exporting almost 40% of their exports were going to China. The Chinese government one day woke up 
decided they wanted to punish Australia uh, because Australia had uh, had uh, proposed an investigation to find out the origins of COVID. So China started cutting off, uh, you know, all sorts of exports, beef and coal and seafood. Uh, and uh, the Australians, um, uh, to their credit, did not back down to Chinese demands. And ultimately, they found new markets. And actually, the Australian economy, as a result, is more resilient today than it was uh, two years ago, because they have a much more diversified export base. They were able to find and develop new markets. Many of the new markets that they developed are in societies that actually enjoy the rule of law. So you have some recourse if, if you know, the government or if your, uh, you know, your purchaser decides that they want to violate the terms of an agreement, you still have recourse. There is no recourse in a Leninist uh, dictatorship as practiced under the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. There just isn't. And by the way, the Australians were not wrong by saying it's a pretty reasonable thing to actually get into China and determine the actual origins of COVID. And uh, so they're, they're not wrong on that. We're not wrong for being able to uh, push that. And I know there are folks looking away and saying, okay, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. It does actually matter uh, whether this was actually released from a laboratory in China and what that really means uh, for the rest of the world and for so many of us that have lost loved ones uh, during the time of COVID. It does matter uh, on its origins. And it's just one more piece where the Chinese will just suppress information and uh, will control their own people, even to the demise of their own people, uh, to be able to manage uh, from a from a top down because they can't have the top look bad uh, because they dominate uh, their their people and their society. Matt, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming in to be able to have this dialogue and to be able to bring some light to this. Uh, we encourage folks to be able to find out more and more about China and to get past the PR and to be able to learn what it really means uh, for whether you are Uyghurs in China uh, that are living in basically concentration camps being retaught to be more Chinese or whether it's how they control their press or their, their faiths or whatever it may be. Uh, people to be able to get on the other side of that and to be able to say as Americans, it is important that we not only have that kind of freedom, but people around the world are able to be able to live and practice that kind of freedom as well in their own life. We want what's good for us to be experienced by other people, and that doesn't happen when you've got a government with their thumb on you constantly uh, to be able to manage and control. So Matt, thanks for staying on top of these issues. Thanks for continuing to be able to communicate what you know, what you've researched for so many years in the way that you do that. Thanks, Senator. It's been a real honor to be with you. Matt, glad to be able to do it. And for those of y'all that are still listening in on it, thanks for being a part of this conversation. As I mentioned at the very top of the conversation, you can always go to all of the major platforms that deal with uh, all the podcasting subscriptions, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, to be able to get the next episode when this comes out. We change topics every month as we go into some of the different topics of the day uh, to be able to go a little bit deeper, to be able to give you some perspective. As we say, we like to make you the smartest kid at the water cooler in all of your normal conversations or at this point, the smartest kid in, in your own conversation online nowadays. Glad to be able to be a part of this. Track us at uh, langford.senate.gov, langford.senate.gov on our website. We'll have all the contact information for both uh, email, uh, phone numbers for all of our offices. And if you like actually doing a letter and buying a stamp, the post office loves it when you do that. Uh, our snail mail address is even there as well if you want to be able to stay in contact with us. Look forward to the ongoing dialogue and getting a chance to hear your responses and your thoughts to this conversation about China today. God bless you. Thanks. Look forward to the conversation.